Good morning, church. Why don't you come and find a seat? And when you find your seat, why don't you stand? And we're just going to declare some truths uh, over ourselves, um, some truths that we believe about God with all the, the horrible stuff that's happened um, over the past couple of days. Let's just come together and focus our attention on God this morning.
actually me. Lead us in prayer. Lord, this morning we gather as your people and pray with all compassion for the Muslim families who have been devastated by this heinous and senseless violence and tragic loss of life. It's hard for us to imagine the magnitude of such lives lost. So suddenly, in the grief and the sorrow that it has brought. But today, we prayerfully remember those who have lost their lives so suddenly. We hold in our hearts and prayers the families now without fathers, without mothers, without sisters and brothers, daughters and sons. 49 lives that shouldn't have ended through this act of hate and the hundreds more forever changed by this grief and loss. Bring them relief and comfort. Gently surround them with your love and our prayers for strength. We pray for the blessing of healing upon those who have survived. Heal their memories of trauma and devastation. Heal their physical wounds that will always remind them of the day hate came to our corner of the world. May they have the courage to face these days ahead with the loss and the pain and the reality of what has been enacted against them. May they know that they are us. They are Kiwis, and this is not who we are. Help us to respond with generosity and compassion, not only in prayer, but generosity and compassion through assistance and action. Generosity and compassion and comfort for those who mourn. And practical help as it is needed, but also deeper in your desire to keep our hearts focused on the needs of all the community, no matter what their race or their color or their religious background. Lord, we pray for the trauma that this has created in Christchurch. May your love pour forth through the prayers the presence and the service of your churches and pastors and the many others caring for people from all nations to begin the healing process. Bind together those communities in grace and faith, hope and love. Send your life-giving Holy Spirit, Jesus, we pray.
gratitude and thankfulness for the hundreds of doctors, surgeons, nurses, ambulance officers and police 
and many others that we don't even know of yet in Christchurch who for three days haven't rested and have had their lives altered forever, exhausting themselves to save fellow Kiwis, victims also of a crime no one could believe would happen on our soil. From the first responders to those who will counsel and walk alongside all those profoundly affected for the weeks and even years to come as this horrific tragedy reverberates and echoes in their lives and ours. We ask your peace, Father, your comfort, your strengthening and embrace for those whose first-hand view of the horror of Friday's violence will remain etched in their memories. Spirit, bring your healing transformation to them as they continue with all their heart to serve, to bring healing, and to bring comfort by those most affected by this. Give them courage and hope that tomorrow will be a little easier. Yeah. 
many of us here in this room today wrestle with the confusion and pain that this appalling event has etched into our history. It's devastating way in which it has challenged the very ideals we would hope our society would be built on and that our national anthem extols. Lord, as we grapple personally with how to make sense of an act that will change life as we know it in New Zealand forever, We ask for your loving guidance in seeing how we might embrace someone who is other without fear or prejudice. Many of us don't have words. There is numbness, even fear. Lord God, bring hope and despair, courage for our fear, love to action, and faith for the journey to come. Finally, Lord, it's through gritted teeth, I 
pray for the perpetrators of this act of terror. Bring conviction unto repentance and then forgiveness unto salvation. Father, speak as only you can. As Jesus did to those who nailed him to the cross, to those who held the hammer and the nails in their hands, we ask your life to flow even into them. And for the families that may be as shocked as we are, keep them safe. Be present and keep hate from their doors. Only light, not darkness, can drive out darkness. You are our peace and comfort, Jesus, and we rest in you this hour.
prayer. That's, uh, I want to encourage you to say the words, Lord, hear our prayer. For the 49 who have died as victims of senseless violence, for the families who suffer as a result of the death of their loved ones, for the friends of the dead who mourn their passing, for this we pray, Lord, hear our prayer. For the recovery of the wounded and those injured, one of whom is only five years old. For all people to respect the sanctity and the value of life, no matter their race or culture. For an end to aggression brought on by fear against people groups, ethnicities, traditions. For this we pray, Lord, hear our prayer. For an end to senseless hatred among all people. For an end to divisions and categories among all people. For an understanding of the unity and the value of all human life. Lord, hear our prayer. And finally, for peace in a troubled city. For healing of our land and its devastated people. For your loving grace and mercy. God to be poured out on all who suffer. For this we pray. Lord, hear our prayer. Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. For the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Amen. You may be seated. I invite Craig to come. Kira, good morning, everybody. As you can already tell, today we've um, put our normal services on hold to stop and to remember those uh, victims in Christchurch and, uh, and help our own souls come to a better place of understanding or even just a point of grieving because we as a nation have been so deeply moved by the tragedy that has unfolded and the shocking hatred that was expressed. What do we do when evil comes to town? When we're shocked and devastated and we realise that as New Zealanders right down here on the 45th parallel of the southern part of this this planet Earth that we're on, we too are not immune from what goes on in different parts of the world. And our little secret security bubble has been, has been popped, hasn't it? Our little sense of confidence that it wouldn't happen here. But we live in a global world with a global culture, with global values, and for that reason, the ripple effect makes its way all the way through to our nation here in New Zealand. And, and these are the things that we've heard in the media and we understand. And so for us as... Uh, not only as Kiwis, but as Christians, we're trying to work through what it is and how it is and where it is that God is at play in the midst of all of this. But for now, the first response that we have to have is that we, we grieve. Some of the whys and wherefores and the story will come out in the days and months ahead. But for now, we've got to wrestle with uh, what's shifted, what's changed, and how is this going to affect us going forward? Our own um, 
outpouring of grief, I suppose, was one of those um, accumulative stories. I don't, I don't know about you, but um, when I was watching TV on the Friday and we heard that maybe six to nine people had died, and then the Prime Minister comes out and says 40 people, and then by the end of the night it's 49 people, and it's just, just the weight of that just weighs so heavy on everybody, doesn't it? When you realise that these people are uh, our people, that they might have come from a different place, a different language, a different origin. Some of them, ironically, fled from persecution, which makes it a double tragedy, doesn't it? But the way in which we process our own grief and how do we explain this to our children? How are we going to talk about this in the weeks ahead, the months ahead, and the years ahead? What scar is this going to put upon our cultural landscape? All of these things are just still up in the air at the moment, and we can't really even attempt to define what this is going to mean for our country. There's a sense in which we've lost our, our innocence, isn't it? Yeah, we've had um, some tragedies, no doubt, with firearms, the Aramoana disaster, the likes, but um, this is at a whole, whole different scale. It's at an international level. Uh, we too have joined the the terrorist um, club, if you like, the terrorism club. And uh, we've come to realize that uh, evil in itself has a pattern, and we've seen that pattern repeated in Christchurch. And so this morning, I, I want to take us on a little journey, a journey from Scripture, because the fact that evil does have a pattern, um, I want to talk about Um, some similar events that happened in the Old Testament times and how people responded to this because I think you'll find the similarities are quite remarkable and we'll get to see uh, not only the the outworking of evil but the motivations behind it and how it is that uh, regular people can get themselves into a place so worked up that they do heinous things. And so I approach these scriptures with a a sense of... um, of me too. Um, I know the condition of my own soul. I know the condition of my own heart. I know the time, there have been times when I've, I've hated deeply. I'm grateful that I've loved deeply also. But I'm, um, I'm not immune. I'm not immune to what the human heart is capable of doing. So with that spirit, I want us to enter into looking at a story. Uh, it's a story that happened through the time of uh, King Saul and King David. King Saul had been made the king of Israel, been anointed its first king. Big, towering, strong man, huge amount of charisma, great looks, all the pop star stuff. And, um, and yet he had this, this fundamental flaw, he was insecure. And he was insecure to the point where he wanted to defend his right to be king, and not only his right to be king, but his son's rights and their son's rights for generation into generation. He felt that what he had actually been given by God was a dynasty. And by being given a dynasty, he felt that he had the right to defend that, to defend that place and that position for evermore. And there begins his first problem. You see, none of us have the right to defend our place, our power, and our position. We've seen that through the age and the raising up of empires over the years, where people have taken a view that they have a superiority over other people by virtue of birthright. And this is where Saul made his first mistake. The weakness of his heart was such that he couldn't trust God 
for God to look after his children and his children's children. He had to try to build an empire around himself where he could create that well-being for them. He couldn't entrust them to God. And so here begins a journey that led to a, um, a real toxic relationship between him and David, the young David, David who would become king. David had already been told he would be king. And on that basis alone, Saul was envious, jealous, angry, frustrated by the success and the, the acclaim that this young, young boy, really, had already been given by the nation of Israel. And so he plotted and he planned to kill this, as he saw it, an aggressor, an aggressor, an invader to his rightful place and position as the king, his rightful place and position to anoint the next king and the king after that potentially. He felt that he had the right to do this, but this young man David had been raised up. And in doing so, David was now um, threatened at all levels. He had no safe place to go. Very few people that he knew could be trusted because the king had put essentially a, a, a bounty on his head. And so what happened is one time there where uh, David was trying to flee from Saul, uh, he went to uh, a town called Nob, N-O-B, and there he wanted to find some comfort from a community of priests who ministered at this town called Nob. The, Nob, the town of Nob was essentially a town that was like a, um, a holy town that was set apart for the worship of God. Uh, there were holy things there, holy relics and uh, places of worship. And we'll pick up the story now as David goes, looking desperately for help from the high priest there called Ahimelech. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Ahimelech knew that something had gone down. David answered Ahimelech, the priest, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here provided the men have kept themselves from women. Okay, so a whole issue there of consecration and sacredness. But you notice that David is actually trying to avoid the conversation with the, the priest of what is really going on. He's saying, I'm on a mission. Whereas really he was running for his life. Where do you mean, David? Well, I've sent them on to another place. So you can see the confusion already surrounding Ahimelech. But uh, he was very aware of the place and position that David had in his society. So he gave him this consecrated bread. Not only did he give him the consecrated bread, but David went uh, around the back of the sanctuary and he found there the sword of Goliath. Remember that David had slain Goliath and he'd taken this huge sword off him uh, and he'd chopped Goliath's head off with his own sword. So this sword was now sort of an iconic piece of, of Jewish history. It was the sword that David chopped off the head of Goliath the Philistine. So David took the sword and he took the bread and he, and he took off and he ran, ran literally for his life, ran for his life. Now Saul uh, <clears throat> was still pursuing him and he wanted to know what was going on. He wanted to follow him and chase him down. So we pick up the story a little bit further on and uh, we meet uh, another guy called Doeg the Edomite in this story. 
But does Doeg the Enemite, who was standing with Saul's official, said, sorry, I'll, I'll park it up a bit for a second there. I just need to go back and tell you the story before I get there. Um, Saul is questioning the people there in Nob saying, where is David? Have you seen him? What was he up to? And they all really denied helping him. Okay, so they knew something was up. But this Edomite had a completely different view of the story. So that's why we pick it up here. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse, that's David, come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitab at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, and all the men of his family, who were the priests at Nob. And they all came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitab. Yes, my lord, he answered. <coughs> you can see right here that Doeg had misrepresented the story. Okay? So this is where um, confusion comes into the story. And people are making a choice to believe what they want to believe. Saul wanted to believe that David was against him. Saul wanted to believe that David was trying to generate another army to be raised up against Saul and take over the kingdom. And so Doeg the Edomite realized that he could win some favor here by telling the king what he wanted to hear. Now we live in an age, don't we, where you can listen to anything you want and you can believe anything you want because it's on Google and Google is true. Is that right? And the thing is that with all this information being available to us, it takes a huge amount of wisdom and discernment now to work out what is rubbish and what is true. Everybody has a platform. Everybody has a voice. And so therefore you can stoke fires. You can feed misinformation into people who are open and vulnerable. And, uh, and thereby doing this, you end up changing their, their minds and ultimately changing their destiny. And so Doeg the Edomite gave Saul what he wanted Saul to hear because he, knew, he wasn't for David, he was against David. So here is the, the king now wrestling with this new information, basically hearing that the priests at Nob had supported David. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? This is a Ahimelech. You and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. See how the story has grown? Not only has he got a sword and bread, but he's got men and he's lying in wait for me. He's just outside the door, basically. And so this story now has generated a real sense of fear that David is not only after his kingdom, not only is a David's sons going to uh, assume the, 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 the kingship of Israel, but he's going to kill me and he's probably just outside the door and waiting to do it. This is all a story that is generated on fear. And we can see this, can't we, happening in our world today. And essentially this same, these same set of principles generate what it is that, gen that generated the motivation for those killings down in Christchurch. It's the fear of a future that's not secure. It's a fear 
that my present is not going to be the future of my children. It's a fear that's, that the old rules have changed, that somebody else is coming in and is going to take over. It's a fear that I'm going to diminish and somebody else is going to rise up. It's a fear that everybody's after my life. Given half an inch, they'll take a mile and there'll be blood in the streets. This is the sort of stuff that sparks um, um, coups. This is the sort of stuff that just fills the media in today's society. It's misinformation or partial information based upon a part truth, but represented in a way, represented in a way that makes people get what they want. If you want examples of this, just look at CNN and Fox Television. They both represent two uh, political ideologies, and any story has to be spun in a way that allows it to represent what the, the, the preferences of the right are or the preferences of the left. We know this. We see this. We try to discern it, but it's, it's never easy to find the truth. So here is Saul saying, what am I going to do? David is literally at my door ready to take my life because he's convinced himself that that's the case. The truth is he is on the run. He is on the run. And there's a whole story there about what he does when he's on the run. But let's go back to Nob. But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me, but the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So you can see that Saul has reached this conclusion that not only was Ahimelech against David, this is the David who he knew very little of what he was up to, not only had this one high priest plotted against him, but now the whole town of Nob, now the whole of the priesthood. And in Saul's mind, they all had to die. None of them probably even knew, most of them probably wouldn't even know in the story what was actually going on. But by association, now they were all guilty. They were all a threat. They were all against him. They'd all supported this fugitive David, and therefore they all had to die. And we read this story and we say, oh, thank God it stopped here because Saul's gone mad. Thankfully, the soldiers there are saying, we're not going to kill the priests. Then the king, the king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Sorry, he also put to the sword knob the town of the priests with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle and donkeys and sheep. He's gone mad, hasn't he? He's gone mad. He's been given permission by someone in authority who has misrepresented the truth of what has been going on in the story, who is living in fear that the next generation of his family will not be able to accumulate or take over the power of him, that he himself has enjoyed. He's intimidated by an outside group, essentially a family from Bethlehem, coming and assuming the role that he was feeling entitled to. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like white supremacists? It does, doesn't it? So why the evil slaughter? Saul was deeply insecure. He fed himself misinformation, and he thought he could control God. 
God had already told him that his time as king was going to come to an end. See, history has a pattern, doesn't it? It repeats itself. Evil has a pattern. It repeats itself. And for us to find in Scripture a story that is remarkably similar to the experiences of Christchurch shouldn't surprise us because evil is, is a repetition of uh, the ways that the devil works in people's hearts and minds. And we can see this pattern in our society and we have to be very, very open to it, to how it is that it touches, touches us as much as it touches everybody else. Psalm 52 uh, David wrote Psalm 52, and he wrote it for and to Doeg the Edomite. Isn't that interesting? He wrote this to and for Doeg the Edomite. And let's see what uh, David recorded in this psalm. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? That's sarcasm, by the way. Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? You who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word. You, de you, you deceitful tongue, surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at you, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God a stronghold but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. This is David saying, I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you. For what you have done, talking to God, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. And I will hope in your name, for your name is good. So here's David saying that uh, essentially Doeg the Edomite is going to be wiped out that evil doesn't prosper. But he identifies really well the, the character and the nature of this man who celebrates evil, who, whose lies just pour out of his mouth, who, who bases his strength upon his wealth and bases his strength upon his ability to, to harm others. And so for us, we've got to stop now and uh, ask how is it that uh, we in New Zealand... Uh, March 2019. How do, we, how do we face the future? Well, we talked about when evil comes to town, but to be part of the answer, things have got to change in every part of our culture, sorry, every part of our society. So we've got to ask that question of what life looks like when change comes to town. You see, when, when change comes to town, the old, <clears throat> the old order is turned upside down. The old order is turned upside down. That means that New Zealand is now a multicultural society filled with an, a, a huge myriad of ethnicities, of cultural preferences, of different stories from their, their, uh, their own countries. Stories that are, go way back centuries of how they were formed as a people and how that's impacted their religion, their culture, their food, their clothing. And uh, it's very easy to be indifferent and we think indifference is actually a virtue. We think indifference is a virtue. Well, I'm not doing them any harm. They might live across the road. I don't know them, but I'm not hurting them. 
So we think somehow that indifference is a virtue. See, we can be subtly intimidated, subtly threatened by the fact that uh, here's a whole lot of new people coming to our nation. And because of that, maybe my children won't experience what I did when I was a child. Look at the price of houses going up. Wow, my kids will never afford a house. Gosh, if those people had never arrived, it wouldn't be the same way it is now. And we all make jokes about the way different ethnic groups drive. Admit it. The food they eat, the clothes they wear. When the story broke about uh, Christchurch, somebody got on the radio and was talking. Um, Paul Back and I heard this little story of uh, something happened in Auckland just a month ago where a Muslim woman with a hajib got onto the bus and somebody took her on and started challenging her about wearing the hajib and saying that she should go back where she came from. You don't belong here. You're not, you're not one of us. And no one on that bus, on a full bus, said a word. And I didn't judge that situation because I don't know the specifics of it. Maybe I would have been silent too. I don't know. It's easy to sit here in my self-righteousness later on and say I would have acted differently. I don't know if I would have or not. The guy could have been a 10-foot-tall Goliath with tats all over his face. And, you know, and I, when he looked at me in the eye, I might have nodded. You know? <laughs> you know, we, don't know the, we don't know the scenario. But I think in that moment, I was just as grieved as anything else I've heard this last week. You see, it's all about breaking down that indifference and the battle we know is for the heart. The heart. It's always about the heart. And so we've got to win this battle of indifference in our own lives by being open to what God is doing and changing within our nation. Otherwise, we too are implicit in, at some level for how it is that our nation is, is going to, to, to go. Either a nation that's going to take the wounds of this, uh, this tragedy and be healed up stronger, or this wound is going to fester and we'll see more of it. So we, have, we all have an opportunity. And we've got to remember that God encourages us to welcome the strangers and the aliens. It's a very big part of Scripture. In the Old Testament, uh, God would always say to the, the people of Israel, he would say, welcome the aliens and the strangers amongst you. Give them hospitality, for remember that you were once strangers in Egypt. Yeah? You were once strangers in Egypt. So he reminds his people that they too have had a period of time when they were refugees, living in Egypt, uh, oppressed, given the worst jobs. And uh, on that basis, <clears throat> they should have a corporate memory of what, it like, what it's like when somebody actually lifts you up and treats you better. And so we look at Jesus himself, how he healed the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman, how he ministered to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman how he uh, healed the servant of the Roman centurion who came to him. All these people were outside of the immediate family of Israel. But he embraced them and he welcomed them. And so for us, our challenge is to do the same. Uh, yesterday I went down to, down to the mosque um, on, on your behalf, on my behalf. And... Um, 
with, with hundreds of other people in, in, in the city over the, the last 36 hours, 48 hours, I, I, I too put some flowers at the, the fence there of the mosque and had a card. I wrote it on our behalf. <laughs> I trust that's okay. If anybody wants to know what I wrote, I've kept a record of it just in case you're worried. Um, I spoke to the imam for a little bit there. I was fortunate he arrived just as I was arriving. And um, as, I, as I introduced myself and shook his hand and, and embraced him, um, with tears in his eyes, he said, no one knows this, he said, but there's four people in one family who died. He says, these are the things that people don't know about yet. Four people in one family who died. I was like, wow. It's just horrendous. You, I suppose you have this sort of idea that a whole lot of people are killed. You know, the law of averages maybe says one in a family or something like that. But four people in a family. So it was um, uh, part of my own little journey of working through my own grief. Um, and I, I'm sort of here right now, standing amongst you going... I don't really know how to finish off this talk. When that happens, the best thing to do is to stop. So I'll stop and put up this cartoon. I think it, um, it was in the, in the press this last few days. When we stand for prayer. God, we, we don't find answers on days like this <clears throat> because there are no answers. To, um, to truly have an answer, we have to un unpack the soul of a madman. And um, it's not the sort of job I want to do. But God, uh, we, we want to pray for our nation. We pray for uh, all those different ethnic communities that are part of us, that every month in cities and towns throughout New Zealand are sworn into citizenship here in New Zealand. That are Kiwis because they have been, at a political level, born again into a new nation. And so we thank you, Lord, for all the people that are part of our nation that makes it so rich, so diverse. And we agree, Lord, that we would ask you stand against that tide of evil. We would agree together, Lord, that love will conquer, that Jesus' way is the highest way. We know, Lord, that means that he lays down his life. And to some degree, Lord, that means we lay down our rights, our comfort, our familiarity, as we reach over the fence and embrace our new neighbors and, and uh, put aside the fear that we may feel because of the difference. But Lord, we, um, we pray that as a nation, our, our leaders will lead us well. We pray for the police. We pray for uh, politicians, for the judiciary, for people who are going to have to make lots and lots of very difficult decisions. We pray again for the families who have been so deeply affected. And we pray that in the fullness of time, the Muslim community in our nation will feel safe once again. 
God, we thank you that we have the ability to draw strength from you, draw strength from your word, and understand our place within our society. And we just want to pray, Lord, that your spirit would work amongst all the people in our, in our nation. And that reconciliation, that forgiveness, that love, that redemption, things that are so familiar to us will lead the way as uh, our society is knitted back together again. So we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. to